Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Another very busy programme ahead of us on this Monday night. I hope you all had a nice, long, relaxing and refreshing weekend. I hope you did. In studio with me tonight, Aidan Ilana at his home in Malahide, Richard Collins, and soon will be joined from his home in County Wicklow by Niall Hatch. But first, here's a voice I'm sure you'll all be familiar with. It's the former British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Yesterday I went... Uh, as as we all must, uh, 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 to to Peppa Pig World. I don't know if you've been to Peppa Pig World. Who's been to Pans? I've been. Who's been to Peppa Pig World? Not enough. I was well. It's fact. I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. And Peppa Pig World is is very much my kind of place. Uh, it, 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 it has uh, a uh, very safe streets. Uh, Boris Johnson talking about the time he went to Peppa Pig World when he couldn't find his place in the script. Do you remember that? Anyway, Amy, you want to talk about Boris Johnson, but it's not pigs, it's newts. What's going on in the world of newts and Boris Johnson? Well, nothing much really, only gossips in the papers, but <laughs> poor old Boris Johnson cannot build his enormous swimming pool because it is the habitat of the warty newt, also known as the great crest. The warty newt. newt? Yeah, because it's warty skin, that's why it's not a smooth newt. We have the smooth newt in Ireland. We don't have this warty one, but they have three species of newt in Britain. They have the smooth newt, the palmate newt and this great crested newt which is also called the warty newt and this particular third newt I've named is the one that's protected under British law. The other two are not whereas in Ireland our smooth newt is protected under the Wildlife Act. So anyway Boris cannot build his swimming pool because <laughs> he has to get permission to do it and he can't get permission because he will disrupt the habitat of the crested newt and he's absolutely flittered and mad as all these rich people are when they can't get their way and have to make way for creepy crawlies and particularly because when he was Prime Minister of wherever he was and um, he was complaining about the slow pace of things because there were newt counting exercises holding up everything shades of you know swans and snails are holding up development as Bertie Ahern famously said once anyway it's come back to Baltimore the newts are, the newts are holding up his swimming pool as but, well but of course it draws attention to newts Absolutely indeed. Newts are amphibians and in Britain this particular one is locally in ponds and it, 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 it spends a lot of time in water. Our newt, the, the smooth newt, goes to lay the eggs in the water and spends the rest of the time on land. But this great crested newt in Britain needs the ponds for a longer time and it is protected under their own act. He can't even blame the EU for this. <laughs> this, this is his own wildlife act in Britain, in fact. So anyway, we all have Why don't we have the great trouble. crested newt here, though? Why well, have we only them. got the smooth newt? Well, because that's all that ever came. I mean, we got our species after the Ice Age and because we are an island off an island off the mainland of Europe, we have fewer species than Britain has, which in turn has fewer species than mainland Europe has. It's a, a matter of how long it took each one to get to there. So the only one we have is the smooth newt, yeah. which is you know, widespread enough in Ireland, in fact. Well, we're going to be talking soon enough about a species that's arrived here in recent years. Richard, what do you think about this? Well, I think it's very intriguing. The newt is a funny character. This fellow, he likes stagnant water. Well, not stagnant in the sense that it's stinking, but stationary water with no fish and with lots of plants in it, of course. Very, he's a plant uh, eater and so on. And she wraps up her eggs in, in leaves, water leaves. That's a very rare habitat. It's interesting that poor old Johnson managed to pick a place that happens to have such a pond. But I must say, I'm on the side of the news. I wonder, and I presume the smooth news here is also declining. The trouble with newts is they're nocturnal and they're self-effacing. You don't see them. They don't have a great public profile. In fact, they have no public profile. No, no, but, indeed. Um, people mistake them, in fact, for lizards. They I do, or crocod- baby crocodiles. I mean, we used oh, well, to think yes. they were when yes. I was a child. God, you must but have been a tiny child, child, Richard. <laughs> well, it's just one of the... They do rather look like crocodiles. Mind you. To a very unpracticed side. But tell me this, Anna. Do you think that reducing nitrates, the nitrates directive and fertilisers generally... If we did that, would it benefit the newts? Do you think that's a factor in this? 
Well, I don't know whether we have figures to say the newts are reducing. It's one of those species we haven't a huge amount of baseline information from. But reducing the nitrates is only going to do good to our water bodies anyway because the, the actual nitrates washed off into the water increases the growth rate of algae and, and plant life, which is bad for light getting through and, and, and oxygen levels at night when the, those plants are not photosynthesizing. Only respiring and taking in the oxygen again would be a good step all around to have our nitrate levels reduced and I'm sure that the newts would survive as well too when you are looking to know whether there's newts or not. The newts don't lay eggs the way the frogs do which is a big lump of frog spawn and you can see the frog spawning in others frogs but the newts do long strings, one long strings of these on, on winding mm. round plants and it's they're, they're different and quite often you don't get newts and frogs in the same pond anyway because tadpoles tend to eat each other and this sort of thing. Yeah I think anything that improves the quality of our water bodies is good for wildlife anyway. You mentioned breeding there. They have a very funny way of mating. The male <laughs> produces a kind of bag of sperm, which she very discreetly drops off in her vicinity, having done great displays and all kinds of things. And then the female then comes around and gathers it up in her cloaca. Now, Richard, you better explain what the cloaca is. Well, the cloaca is the great drain that ran through the centre of Rome. You can still see it, actually. Uh, Well, you can see the remains of it in the Forum. Cloaca is the back passage, if you like. The name was transferred then to the animal back passage. And in the case of newts and things, it's the common passage for reproduction and for expulsion of wastes and so forth. So this cloaca picks up the spermatophore, I think they call it, and I would know that's the right, word yes. for it. Oh, yeah, but I that's think... at the end of a long carry-on. I mean, the male smooth newt in Ireland really goes to town. He dresses <laughs> up, he has this great crest, he gets different colours, he does wonderful <laughs> dances around the place, up and down and around the place. I mean, putting the parcel at the door at the end is, is only the final act of a, a wonderful display altogether indeed. Certainly very entertaining if you are into that line of entertainment. All this display protests <laughs> enthusiasm and going to great lengths and dressing up because they're very colourful animals. Roots are very colourful creatures. Yes, yes, men are food and for all love, for, And then it all comes to nothing. What a disappointment. Dumping well, the package on the ground and clearing off. Well, and how do you know that your packet goes anywhere? Well, this is the thing. I'm glad I'm not in use. <laughs> That could be the quote of the week. Richard Collins <laughs> declares on air he is glad he is not in use. Is that where the term neutered comes from? No, not at all. No, no nothing but, to do with it. But no. there's pistas in newt, which is also an expression that yeah. causes people to be wondering what on earth are the newts up to taking alcohol. But newt was actually <laughs> a derisory term for the boys who held the horses at the ostlers way back in in the times when people had hackneys and horses and carriages and the, the men in London who went to their clubs left these poor boys outside holding on to their horses and sent out the odd drink to them so that they wouldn't get cold in the London evenings. And of course they were called newts. Why they were called newts, I do not know. But because they got sent out many libations, they were quite inebriated at the end of the evening when the men, gentlemen, left their clubs to go home. So Pistas in Ute was where that came from. Nothing to do with the poor unfortunate creature who is inhabiting our waterways and is stopping Boris Johnson <laughs> from building his swimming pool. Mind you, Boris Johnson has also picked a very bad place because as well as the, the Ute population putting a scupper to the plans, he's also got ancient archaeological foundations of castles nearby because he bought a listed building above in Oxfordshire surrounded by a moat so the archaeology people are after him as well he's very hard up for a swimming pool my heart bleeds for him Niall Hatch joins us now hello Niall Hi Derek, I'm really enjoying the discussion. I'm a big fan of newts and of amphibians and uh, talking about the, the reproductive methods there, uh, there's a very interesting relations of the newts called the salamanders. Newts and, and salamanders belong to the same family and with some salamander species there are no males at all. They've done entirely away with the males of the species. The females just reproduce asexually through a process known as parthenogenesis. Um, so maybe that's the way evolution is going. Males are completely redundant, the females can all do it by themselves, essentially by cloning themselves internally. So it's really quite fascinating how these different reproductive strategies have have evolved. Ah, but we do need sex all the same to mix the genes. I mean, if the females are all doing it by parthenogenesis and they're all clones and the environment changes as it is and there's no way of having, you know, a mutation or having, you know, the essence of sex is the loss of genes. Isn't that what they tell us? So as a consequence, <laughs> um, you're not going to have any kind of change possible in these salamanders. So maybe it is a hiding to nothing. Maybe we do need the men after all.
I think yeah, maybe swings and roundabouts. I mean, mutations can still occur with those with those those uh, cloning incidents. But you're right, the mixing of genes and and, and the, the genetic diversity it does mean that species tend to be more resilient in in the face of change. Uh, some of these salamander species have been around for a very long time for for several million years. But the fact is, they are in a very specific niche. They're not really able to expand. They haven't got huge ranges. So yeah, there's probably something in that. All right, Niall, you had your documentary about puffins on Radio One this afternoon, and congratulations, it was wonderful. But you were all over the news last week. Let's remind our <laughs> listeners. RTE News at One on Radio One. I'm Gavin Jennings. Puffins have left Skellig Vihil off the County Kerry coast earlier than in previous years. The National Parks and Wildlife Service say there is evidence that they've left early, but they don't know why. The island is a special protection area for birds. And every year around April, thousands of puffin return to Skellig Vahil off County Kerry to breed. Niall Hatch is with us. He's Head of Communications with Birdwatch Ireland. Hi, Niall. What do you make of all this? Gavin Jennings on News at One. What a fantastic voice. Well, to steal Gavin's question, what do you make of all this, Niall? Did the puffins actually leave early? To be honest, not particularly. Maybe by a few days, but it was normal for for puffins to leave their breeding colonies around and about the first week of August. Uh, every year, there are quite a few disappointed tourists who go to Schellegvickel or who go to the Cliffs of Moher, hoping to see uh, puffins. They arrive maybe on the on uh, in the first or second week of August, and they're just too late. They're told, "Oh, the puffins left two days ago," or whatever. Um, it's hard to know why the puffins may have left a few days early. It's not necessarily uh, any particular problem. Uh, what they do is they they wait until their chicks are, are more or less fully fed and then at some unknown signal the, the adults all depart en masse they just abandon the place pretty quickly and they leave the little pufflings as the chicks are called behind in their nesting burrows very hard for us to see what's happening because they do nest underground so the little pufflings are in there getting hungrier and hungrier perhaps realising that mum or dad aren't coming back to feed me um, and I'm getting very hungry so instinct tells them it's time to leave the burrow head out over to the Atlantic Ocean and try to find food for themselves so uh, it's kind of being, being cruel to be kind I suppose with the parents it's time for the, for, for the, the young puffins to, to stand on their own two feet or, or, or to, to, to swim with their own two wings in the water I suppose Niall can I ask you when they do leave like I know when the guillemots do this they're, they're, they jump off and their parents are waiting below to help them to feed. Are the, are the puffins completely gone? Are they, when the babies get into the water, are they on their own completely? More or less, yes. The parents just completely disappear and go out to sea. What we see with, with other members of the auk family, because puffins are auks, and the guillemot, particularly the razorbill, are a good example. What happens is dad, uh, so the male, will leave with the chick, leaving mum behind in the nesting ledge. So dad sort of absconds with the youngster. And you have this charming sight of uh, the birds, you know, one big one and one semi-grown one, not as quite as big as its parent, swimming around together in the sea for a while. Well, well, the dad sort of keeps watch on it and the bird learns how to feed the young chick. With puffins, it's a bit different that is head out over the open ocean. But to be honest, as we, we learned in the documentary, there's a lot we still have to learn about puffins. They're very hard birds to track because of this underground nesting habit, at least with the other auks that we have in Ireland, and the guillemots and, and, and the, the razorbills, and the black guillemots as well to a lesser extent because they do nest in, in ca- cavities. The other two nest on cliff ledges, so it's much easier to see what's actually happening, to see how the chicks are developing, to see their behaviour. Uh, and then, of course, when these birds go out to sea, what happens with the razorbills and the guillemots, they tend to stay in relatively close waters. They can go quite far out to sea, uh, but they tend to st- remain mostly in inshore waters or just maybe a couple of kilometres out. With the puffins, it's quite different. We know that our puffins uh, generally actually, some of them head over f- right over to, to near the coast of Newfoundland mm-hmm. almost immediately, spend a bit of time there feeding up and then head to the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean where it's pretty much impossible to monitor them, uh, at least visually. Uh, there's been some tracking work done and uh, transmitters and geolocators put on some of these birds, but it's actually very hard to work out what they're doing. Well, Niall, as Mark Jessup from UCC, Dr. Mark Jessup was telling us, Irish puffins seem to make some of the longest journeys of all the puffins in the world. Yes, it's very interesting, isn't it? And uh, we're towards the, the very southern edge of the distribution of the puffins. So puffins um, well, are Atlantic puffin because there are um, there are three other species of puffin in the world, but they're confined to the Pacific. Uh, so our Atlantic puffins, uh, they breed from, from the Arctic Ocean, so the, the northern coasts and the islands off northern Russia and very north of Scandinavia, down as far south as around Brittany and then into the New England coast, in the United States. Um, big col- the biggest colonies are in Iceland, the big ones in Norway and also in Canada. But in Ireland, we're getting towards the very southern edge of, of their range. Uh, and uh, so, yes, these birds sometimes do have to travel quite a distance to find food. And the thing is, it's getting more difficult for them 
because climate change is having a big impact on the behaviour and the distribution of the small fish that these puffins need to feed on mm-hmm. and crucially that they need to feed to their chicks. Uh, puffins um, small, feed on these small fish like sand eels and sprats and what happens is those fish in turn, they like to feed on plankton, uh, these little um, microscopic and very small organisms that live in the, in the water. And plankton likes cold, they like cold water because uh, that has more oxygen in it. So as ocean temperatures warm, what happens is the plankton move further north into the colder water, the small fish follow them. And this can actually take the fish out of range of the puffin nesting burrows. Mm-hmm. So the adults may be able to survive quite well and find enough food for themselves because puffins can live for 30 years or more. Uh, but it could mean that it's no longer viable for them to fly so far, take food back to their chicks and there could be too long a gap between feeding and then chicks may starve. So puffins are designed to travel long distances but, um, but with climate change back, it is making it harder. back is yeah. the issue isn't it to feed the chicks. Well anyway if you'd That's like it. to listen to that documentary if you missed it it was on RT Radio 1 this afternoon at 3pm visit our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney we were talking about newts and I was wondering why the great crested newt hadn't made it here to Ireland and Aina was explaining, well, one creature that has made it here to Ireland is the rose ring parakeet. It's estimated that there are some 12,000 pairs of rose ring parakeets breeding in the wild in Britain and some say they are as ubiquitous as pigeons in some places. This invasive medium-sized parrot species would have either escaped or been released from homes where they were kept as pets. They now present a multifaceted threat to native wildlife, along with the problems of noise in built-up areas. I have to say, I like the sound of their squawks, but it is loud. And they have now been confirmed to be breeding in Dublin, with sightings also in Cork, Leash, Tipperary, Belfast and Wicklow. In fact, a friend of mine who lives in Dublin 9 has them in his garden, but they're not necessarily breeding there. But we actually discussed this on the programme some time ago. So, should their spread in the wild be stopped? And if so, how? So we're joined by a colleague of yours now, Niall, Brian Burke of Birdwatch Island. Hello, Brian. Hi, Derek. Hi, everybody. Great to have you on the programme now. Tell us about the parakeets. They're breeding. The ring-necked parakeet is breeding in Ireland. Should we be concerned? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's this um, kind of quite tropical species, quite novel for people to see. People are kind of uh, confused and, and maybe a bit delighted when they see them. You know, they're so different to anything else that we've got here. But they're breeding in Ireland for the last couple of years. And, you know, there's still only a handful of pairs and a few birds around the place. But we know from other countries that there's the potential for their numbers to grow very rapidly. And with that comes, you know, the potential for a lot of impacts on a lot of our native species. So they're they're nice to look at, but they're not a bird we really want here on, on a permanent basis. Just describe what they look like for the benefit of the listeners who haven't seen them. Yeah, absolutely. So they're completely green. There's various shades of green in there, but you kind of, you won't miss them. They're completely green. A bright kind of red bill, kind of short and round, you know, like any kind of parrot or parakeet people might see in a pet shop or in a zoo or anything like that. They have a lovely big, long green tail. And, you know, I've seen those tail feathers... um, being found in the likes of um, peregrine falcon nests and stuff like that in, in places like London. You know, again, you can't you can't miss it. Um, and yeah, the males have this kind of rosy kind of ring, half ring around the neck as well, which is where they get the, the other name for them is the, the rose-necked parakeet. Something like that. We tend to call them the ring-necked parakeet, but yeah. A bit bigger than a blackbird or medium size. They weigh about 150 grams. You know, a blackbird would weigh 100, 120 grams. So they're medium. In, in terms of birds you'd see on your feeder, they'd be maybe one of the, the bigger ones that might land on your feeder. What's the problem with having them here? So I suppose like any non-native species, you know, our native bird communities, our native wildlife haven't adapted to living with this species. And because of that, that could give them disproportionate advantage you know the fact that they're not here naturally you know there's the potential for them to dominate you know in an environment where they're they're not native and you know they shouldn't be here except for human activity if we look at birds and wildlife and and biodiversity declines across the world the top three issues are habitat loss climate change and invasive species and this is an invasive species so you know, with regards nesting, you know, we know we've got a, a couple of pairs that have, have nested in Dublin in the last few years. They nest in tree cavities. So there's the potential there for them to displace native species that might otherwise nest in those tree cavities. Stuff like starlings, you know, potentially woodpeckers, tits. Um, in the UK, there's concerns over the impact of nut on nuthatch. We don't have nuthatch here, but bats as well would be another one. You know, they can displace um, bats as well. So there's that, that, you know, we have precious few 
old trees and, and woodlands and stuff like that with these natural um, cavities that birds and, and bats and stuff like that rely on. And um, these guys could end up occupying them all, you know, especially if, if they grow in numbers in, in the way they have in other European cities. And then we see in the winter as well, then, you know, they can absolutely dominate bird feeders. You know, bird feeders can be very important in cold winters, in, in urban areas to support the, the local bird communities. And these guys, because of their size and because they're kind of... um. You know, they're quite a dominant species. They're they're not shy by any means. Um, so you know they can credit um, our native species there too. You often hear of calls in the UK for culls because they're a problem for agriculture and particular for vineyards in the south of England. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, you know, there's there's potential for crop damage. I, you know, there's been reports of them um, ending up in jet engines and and stuff like that as well. So there's yeah, there's a whole list of a whole list of other problems apart from maybe the direct impacts on biodiversity. Um, certainly, you know, some of their roosts, you know, can have hundreds and or sometimes even thousands of birds, yeah, and the droppings that results from that in you know in a lot of um urban parks and in woodlands and stuff like that too can can be very damaging to the trees and, and to the, the ground flora as well. Mm. So, you know, there's, you know, unfortunately with invasive species, there's the kind of a long list of, of potential problems. You know, some of those problems, you know, they wouldn't be obvious now. We've only got a few parakeets, but by the time they are obvious, uh, the genie will be out of the bottle and we won't be able to mm. do anything about it. I remember back in the 1990s, I worked for a short time on a programme called Nature Detectives on BBC One Television and I made a report about this particular bird which was becoming naturalised in Britain from escapees, it was believed, people who had been keeping them as pets and they got out either deliberately or accidentally and they start to populate the countryside and then skip forward 20 years and myself and Niall put together a series about invasive species for BBC Radio 4 and one of the episodes featured this very same bird which had now become naturalised and a problem. So, where will it end up here? My question is, where do the ones that are found now in Ireland breeding come from? Because, as I understand it, they originate on the Indian subcontinent. Do they come from there? Or did they come across the water from Britain? That's a good question. And the answer is, we don't know. I would suspect, uh, I think a lot of us would suspect that they're probably from a more local release. You know, they are kept in captivity quite a lot. And all you need is for a couple of birds to to escape, you know, at the same time and meet up in a park um, and then you've got a problem. There is the potential. Uh, we certainly couldn't rule out them having come from the UK. We know their numbers are growing over there, but I suspect it was probably something more local, especially the fact that, you know, it's kind of a small number that started out here as well, you know. Um, so that's probably it. And I suppose the ideal solution would be that while there's still only a few birds around, if we can find out where they are and if we can catch them and return them to captivity, I think everybody, the birds uh, and the rest of us would be would be happy with that solution, you know. But if they're cavity birds, then will they will they go to nest boxes? Can you get nest boxes for them and have them in nest boxes as such? Or are they colonial breeders? Are they all together or are they individual breeders or do we know how they breed as such? That's another good question. I think they're kind of semi-colonial in in that you know they w- you won't be miles away from each other. Um, but certainly we wouldn't be encouraging anyone to uh to to put up any nest box for them or to look into that. And if anyone has them in their nest box or hanging around their bird feeders, we need them uh, to let us know. How about you could nab them if you put up a nest box and they talk oh, to the right. nest box? Then you could nab them and put them very back into sneaky, captivity. Very sneaky, Very sneaky. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, well, even most. with the tree cavities, I think that's that's that would be the you know the best best most reliable way to catch them would be that's it to have a little drop down door maybe that you pull mm-hmm. with a bit of fishing line bird goes in and you know door comes down and you know um, we can kind of extract them safely after that you know and, and attempts have been made and, and with kind of um, some success um, but it's still kind of an ongoing process. Richard Can I be devil's advocate to some extent here we used to talk about the plain people of Ireland it's not a phrase we use nowadays but it is true to say that we have the plain birds of Ireland and as somebody said there now if the rose ring parakeet comes he is exotic he doesn't fit in like the pheasant who came long ago or was brought in long ago he is exotic he doesn't fit the Irish country countryside but he has become respectable so the issue now is can this particular bird become respectable as you say there's all these negative things about him but he is a great entertainer in european cities you hear very little on bird song or bird noise you see very few birds Mm. 
except for the parakeet. parakeet the par- exactly, it's all the over parakeet. the place now. He's a, he's a great entertainer, this And it's fellow. gorgeous to look at, Richard. He's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous to look at. You were asking about somebody, you were mentioning there, Brian, his, the extent to which he will go to feed. He'll even strip the petals off flowers to suck out the nectar i mean that, that is that he's like a hummingbird in that regard but he's also you can teach him to if in captivity to speak to speak uh, mimic you they're wonderful mimics I, i'm almost reminded of andrew jackson the 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 american president whose funeral in 1845 the paris was there and all the great and the good were coming into to pay their respects to the president and the parrot kept mouthing the most awful obscenities in front of everybody disgracing the family <laughs> and he had to be removed from the obsequies now i'm not suggesting that we train these parrots do the same but they are very versatile creatures they have something going for them will they become like the pheasants respectable citizens I think I might uh, dispute the respectability of pheasants. Uh, I know there's a lot of research being done in the UK, for example, on on their impacts. While we've kind of um, accepted them as part of the countryside, uh, the more we look into it, you know, we can kind of pinpoint maybe the damage that is associated with them. And again, it's the same example where they're taken from one side of the world uh, to the other by humans, dropped into somewhere that they're not familiar with and that the, the local wildlife isn't familiar with them. And... That rarely ends up well, you know, but like no doubt about it, the parakeets are very impressive birds. They're very adaptable birds. Um, it's not their fault that they're here, you know, like like so many other things. It's it's the fault of people, but it's just I think it's a risk we can't afford. And, you know, I think maybe that is very telling that if you go to some other European cities and all you can hear is parakeets, you know, that's not the way it should be, you know. So uh, that's maybe hinting at some of the impacts they've had. You know, some people get annoyed maybe with a lot of starlings and stuff like that on their feeders in the winter. And, and, you know, they can be quite noisy and quite numerous at times as well. But that's a species that at European level is under quite a bit of pressure. And I think that's maybe one species that the parakeets, you know, could impact in a number of ways between um, competing for nest sites and competing for food and stuff like that as well. But you're hardly calling for a cull, are you? You mean you wouldn't kill a bird, would you? <laughs> um, what time does this go out at? Uh, um, no, um, we're, we're we're at the situation. We're at the stage now where there's only we know that there's only a few pairs. There's only a few birds, and if we can get enough information from enough people across the country about where and when they're seeing these birds, there's potential you know to react to hopefully bring them back into captivity. And as I said, it'll so be do you want people to birds. contact you and tell you then? Is that the case? Yes, if people, anyone sees it or if anyone has seen one, you know, in the last week, the last month, the last six months, um, and any time of the year, if you see one, if you go to the National Biodiversity Data Centre website and there's a special page there to log any sightings. And it just means we can keep up to date with their spread, with their movements, uh, and hopefully we can, as I said, come up with this happy ending where we can we can catch them, we can bring them into captivity and, you know, then we won't be seeing the impacts that they've had in other countries. I want to ask you one thing, Brian. Is it a crime to release something that has the potential to be an invasive species? So if you're sick of your parakeet screeching around your house and you let it out, is this actually a crime or just bad practice? I mean, can we get at the No, you, you, them you definitely can't, can't release species with invasive potential like that at all. And I think even in, in the UK, there's... And we, we would have it here as well where, uh, you know, like Richard, I'm a, I'm a trained and, and licensed bird ringer. If I was to capture one of these birds, I couldn't just let it go again. I would have to hold on to it and I'd have to contact the relevant authorities because by catching it and letting it go again, I am releasing a bird with, uh, you know, invasive potential. Um, and you just can't do that because, because you know, we've seen time and time again, whether it's mink or whether it's, it's parakeets or, or something like that, the impacts can be huge, uh, can be very costly and... You know, things might get to a stage very quickly where you can't can't undo them, you know. Ah, but there's no punishment for people who do it. It's just very bold of them and very naughty. And yeah, well, that, 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 that's another issue too. And, you know, it can be very hard to prove that someone intentionally let out something like a parakeet rather than it, it having, you know, escaped when you're opening the, the cage door or something like that. But I suppose it's one of those things people should be very mindful, whether it's a parakeet or, you know, there's plenty of tortoises and, and stuff like that in, in ponds in Dublin. But you, you really can't, can't let animals and, and birds that are not native to Ireland out like that um, because potential for a huge amount of damage. All right, Brian, thank you very much indeed. Lovely to talk to you. Niall Hatch is still with us. Niall, as you know, is communications officer with Birdwatch Ireland. This must be a tricky one for you, Niall, when I asked Brian there, wouldn't kill a bird, would you? You wouldn't recommend that kind of stuff, would you, in Birdwatch Ireland? 
Well, the thing is, we're at a stage with these parakeets where this can be nipped in the bud. Nobody wants to see these birds being harmed. uh, And it's actually better for them in captivity. Parrots can be very long-lived birds. uh, And the climate here, although, as Brian was saying, they can survive um, pretty well in an Irish environment, it's still not the optimum conditions for them. We know from studies that have been done in places like Germany, for example, that uh, the same species, the the rose-ringed parakeet, uh, that they're in the wild there, their lifespans are much shorter. Many of them end up missing toes because of frostbite. So they're not so well adapted to our environments as they uh, as, as so they are to their native range. For their nature. benefit, not for our benefit. Well, no, I think I think it's for everyone's benefit. I think that the, the best thing for everybody, um, including our native wildlife and us humans, and for the parakeets, is for them to be returned to captivity. Be- as Brian said, before the genie is out of the bottle, that's a very good way to put it. Uh, and the thing is that they are beautiful birds. Absolutely stunning. Uh, but the fact is that uh, th- they do displace native native species. They do pose threats to agriculture and to fruit orchards and so on. But also they can become a really quite overwhelming pest. I mean, you may recall, Derek, you, you will recall, you and I were, were in Rome last year. I mean, one of the parks, a beautiful place, coming towards sunset. The sheer noise of thousands of these parakeets flying overhead was absolutely deafening. I and this is something that I, I think... I liked people- it. What's wrong with me? And I love the colour of them. I think it's just a beautiful bird to look at, as I was saying, the land puffin, if you like. Oh, there's no denying that. They are absolutely beautiful. Uh, but the, the fact is that they're, they're not a native part of our environment. When we see these species coming in, they can have detrimental effects. And yeah, all of that, those effects that are unknown. Across because my mate who has them up in Dublin 9 in his garden visiting, they're not living there. He loves to see them. He said, God, there's a bird coming in. It's fabulous. And I went out to have a look. And I said, sure enough, it is. But it probably shouldn't be here. Well, if I, if I had one in my own garden, I would certainly be watching it. They're absolutely, absolutely stunning bird. Uh, but the fact of it is that they will cause problems for, for our native wildlife. There's, there's certain species, as Brian was saying, like, like, like our bats, like the starlings. A bird called the stock dove is another one that's impacted quite badly by them. And that's a declining species in Ireland. Uh, they will, they're, they're, they're quite bullying. They're gregarious. They can force these other creatures out of their nesting and roosting cavities. And this can lead to further declines. And when you couple that with things like climate change and landscape change, habitat loss, all of these things, it's yet another um, straw on the camel's back of biodiversity loss. So the fact is that these non-native species coming in, where they also don't have any really natural predators, I mean, obviously birds like sparrowhawks and peregrine falcons might catch a couple of them, but they're, they're not going to have any meaningful effect on the overall population. And I think that if you asked um, biologists and wildlife conservationists and government agencies and farmers in many other European countries, including in southern England, where the species is so prevalent, including in cities like uh, like Amsterdam, in Brussels, in, in Nice, uh, in Barcelona, in Madrid, in Rome, where these species have, have really taken hold, if they could turn back the clock and catch those early few pioneers before the species took hold, they would absolutely jump at the chance because it could end up costing millions or even billions of euros um, to control this population and this problem in the future to mitigate against the effects on on uh, problems for agriculture, on biodiversity loss and so on. Whereas for a very small initial outlay with no harm coming to these birds, the problem could be nipped in the bud here and now. And I think that this is something that I really think the state should take no, on. I, I agree with you, but so you catch these birds that are there in the wild now and then what do you do with them? Do you put them in a cage well, the, and sell them to somebody and say, keep this in your house? Whatever you do, don't open the window. Well, well essentially, yes. I mean, and the fact oh, is... Well, no, but the fact is that m- many of the birds you're seeing, the, these ones that are breeding, that they, they originally came from captivity. Uh, they're obviously, it's not their fault. They're behaving the way that they, they would naturally. Uh, but these are birds that don't necessarily suffer from being I know, kept but if well they're breeding, captivity. then you're going to take ones that are born in the wild. But they adapt very well to that. Um, and and the, the fact of it is that... You know, in a rage, isn't that what they say? Well, 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 I, well indeed, but... The, I'm just saying, Derek, you're just playing the devil's advocate. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I was going to ask, Niall, what are their natural enemies where they are native? I mean, why are they not going absolutely bananas in the foothills of the Himalayas or wherever they come from? Have they enemies there that are keeping the population in check? And how does that work? Or do we know? Well... well They do. So there's a wider diversity of birds of prey there that have specialised to feed on these. But also there's um, a wider diversity of mammalian predators, particularly mustelids, members of the weasel family that can easily crawl up and get into their their nesting sites. Uh, Now, obviously, we do have predators like that in Ireland, like the stoat and the pine marten. But what we find in a European context is that these parakeets, they very much become birds of urban and suburban areas where there are fewer predators. So it's not a bird you tend to find or encounter in huge numbers in the wider countryside elsewhere in Europe where they become introduced. They're birds you see in urban centres and in city parks where there is less competition for them. And that's not necessarily the case in 
where they occur in, in Asia, uh, because there you have lots of competition from other species as well. So there are other kinds of birds and bats and other creatures that also compete against them. So the parakeets don't have it all their own way, whereas here in our urban areas, they do. And we also know that, especially in southern England and in parts of France, uh, the uh, the survival of these birds, it's very much driven by bird feeders as well. They will descend en masse onto bird feeders and just start ripping apart the feeders and eating all the food. Uh, and that is a big driver in, in supporting them and, and keeping them going in the wild. So I think, you know, it's no disrespect to the birds. I, I, I love all birds. I absolutely love parakeets. But it's not it's not a bird we want to take hold here in Ireland. Uh, much better that the natural balance can be restored. I mean, nip this in the bud as soon as we can. All right. We leave it there for the moment. But you can visit the website for more details, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, talking about invasive species, time now to catch up with our ace reporter Terry Flanagan at his home in Dublin 15. Terry made a documentary about invasive species for Mooney Goes Wild. Oh, I think it was last year or thereabouts, Terry. Yes, Derek, last year, that's right. And I don't think many people understand the importance of invasive species because they can upset the balance of nature and they can carry disease, they can compete with native species. In fact, I remember the very first report I did on invasive species. It was with Dr Dan Minchin down in Loch Derg in the 1990s on the zebra mussel. Now, I didn't know much about the zebra mussel then, but two things stood out from that interview with him. One was the sheer numbers in Loch Derg. He told me that there were more zebra mussels in Loch Derg than there were humans on the whole of the earth. My goodness. And the second thing was the numbers of biologists studying this particular species in the US. He said that there were more biologists in America studying this than there were biologists in the whole of Ireland. So that really kind of woke me up to the whole thing of invasive species. And over the years, and particularly on that on that documentary we did last year, we talked about newer ones, the likes of the chub and, and the, the quagga mussel. And one that really stands out are the, are the terrapins, because lots of kids bought terrapins 10 or 20 years ago with the teenage mutant ninja turtles. And lots and lots of them have been appearing, particularly in the canals. And I know last year on a summer's day, I walked along the Royal Canal here beside me and I saw three of them, three different ones. And of course, going back before that, we had giant hogweed, which was a really serious invasive species. That caused a huge amount of trouble. And it's only now that I think people are really beginning to understand and to learn about these particular ones. But anyway, I'm not here today to talk about uh, invasive species. I'm here to talk about a scientist, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Barrington. He's an Irish man. He was born in Wicklow and he's a naturalist. And I think you were chatting to, to Matthew Jeb in the Botanic Gardens mm-hmm. recently. About, about this very individual. Matthew said we should do a report about this man. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, but he actually has a collection in the gardens, but that's not where we were. He's best known for his collection that he accumulated in the late 1800s. And what he did was he was in touch with keepers of lighthouses and lightships around the country. And he asked them to record information on birds killed at stations, lighthouses and so mm-hmm. on, and to send the specimens or part of the specimens to him. And that collection is now in the Natural History Museum. And to give you an idea of the size, Derek, there's something like 400 boards, yeah. a thousand skins mm-hmm. and 3,000 legs. Oh dear, legs. <laughs> legs, yeah. So it's a massive collection. Now, because it's so big, they're not all on display. But to learn more about Barrington and his birds, Richard and I paid a visit to the museum where we met up with keeper Paolo Viscardi. Richard Collins, that is. Richard Collins, <laughs> none other than our own Richard Collins. <laughs> Talk about Richard Barrington anyway. Here it is. <laughs> Hey, do you want to come over this way, Richard? We're going to take a look at the Barrington birds. Yes, up on the first floor. Very nice. Now this is it. Yes, beautiful. And beautifully mounted. So these ones are the ones which Barrington actually put into the Fassero Museum that he built, Mm. um, he he made uh, for the reference Mm. of birds. So you can come in and see what birds you'd find in the local area and... There are a few which you wouldn't find locally. There Indeed, are some absolutely. There. Looking up there, there's all kinds of interesting things. There's the long-tailed duck, which we used to find, but hardly ever see them now. But Richard Manleaf Barrington, he was quite a character. He was an incredible naturalist, very, very keen botanist as well. So mm-hmm. I know that they have some of his collection over in the Botanic Gardens. But his main kind of passion, the thing that he's known best for, be the birds. Now, he's an Irish man, of course. He's from County Wicklow. That's right, yeah. So, um, so Passero is where he was actually based. His family, the Barringtons, were Quakers and they were very, very kind of heavily involved in all sorts of things. They fed people through the famine and uh, they, they had a 
big extended family. They ran um, a free hospital. They did all sorts of things. One of them was uh, a Actually, one of the people who helped build this museum, Fred Barrington, over in Ring's End, was the uh, Iron Wright who uh, kind of made, cast the big pillars that we have that holds the building up. So the DNA of the Barringtons runs right through the museum in many, many ways. They're, they're a fascinating family, and Richard was an incredible uh, naturalist. He was a key mountaineer. He went out on survey vessels, went out to places like Iceland, Rock all, all sorts mm-hmm. of places, mm-hmm. very, very difficult, mm-hmm. very tough mm-hmm. environments to work in. And all of it was done in the pursuit of knowledge. About in fact, when he went to Rockall, didn't he go with Prager? Yes, yeah, yeah. As part of that, uh, there was a, an expedition that went out there and the idea was to set up a weather station on the rock and to survey the birds, but the sea conditions were too rough, they couldn't land, and so they had to basically survey from the vessel and they weren't able to put in a weather station. In fact, they almost turned inside out from seasickness. And they made two trips a week apart. And here he goes out again. Uh, he, was, he was definitely very, very dedicated to understanding the world around him. And he didn't really let physical hardship get in the way of that. He, he went out there. He did a huge amount of work, huge amount of uh, knowledge of how birds migrate in and out of Ireland comes from the work that he did although most of that was actually done by citizen scientists and in terms of light station keepers all around the coast yes but he set that up he actually contacted all the lighthouse keepers and lightship mariners off ireland to have them send in specimens of birds that hit the light or their wings and feet Tell us a bit about that. You must have a collection of wings and feet somewhere. There were thousands of them sent in. Yeah, um, so there are over 3,000 um, wings and legs. So mm. they, they were sent in little envelopes. Mm. I think the preparation of them might leave a little bit to be desired, but it's a lot better than sending a whole bird in the post. Mm. Because effectively, as I say, this is a citizen science kind of uh, exercise. The idea is that people all around the coast of Ireland, these light station keepers, would find dead birds because they would fly into the light stations. They'd fly into the lights of the houses, of the lighthouse of the light ships, um, die, and then they'd be collected. And sometimes there'd be huge numbers during the migration season. And by taking the detailed information about the dates, the locations, and so on, and the weather conditions and whatever else, and the species of the bird, we're able to build up a really, really detailed picture of the movement of birds in and out of Ireland. And that's all because of these really important data that were sent in from these light stations. But the important thing is that Light station keepers weren't necessarily expert ornithologists, and so they needed to find some way in which to validate those observations. And the way in which they decided was to take the wing and the leg from each of the birds that that was described, because that gives you enough information to get an identification on the species. And so that's what happened. And Barrington, he started the ball rolling on that, and money was coming in from an external source originally. I think it was the the British Association of Science. But that that kind of dried up fairly quickly, just as the ball was really starting to roll properly on the project. And so he funded it himself, actually, out of of his own pocket, which is when you consider thousands of effectively prepaid envelopes being sent out all around the country... Um, and being sent back to him with specimens in, that would be a fairly expensive undertaking um, to take on yourself. So these uh, um, specimens here in front of us now, many of them would have collided with lights in the past. Now, what would happen if you're out in the Tusker or something like that, and a bird collides with the light and you find it, and it's very stormy for several days, and it's gone manky and there's no fridges, you'd put it in a parcel, and you would eventually they'd take it ashore and post it at Wexford, and it would uh, even more manky it would arrive up here at the museum, and somebody like you would have to open this put a close pick on the nose or something now what would happen then would you would you um, consider it for mounting as they call it or would you say it's too manky we won't touch it even though it's a very strange bird this is actually a, a fairly big problem um once a bird starts to decay a little bit it, you can't you can't really mount it properly for taxidermy it doesn't work the, you get something called skin slippage which means that the feathers start falling out they get very matted the skin decomposes the, there's fat under the skin as well and it becomes very acidic because it starts to oxidize and that literally burns holes in the specimen so really unless you freeze it fairly quickly a bird that strikes a lighthouse these days you you just couldn't preserve so most of the birds that are mounted by barrington are actually ones which were shot because they went out specifically to capture specimens of those birds and they would come intact and obviously you'd have to 
take the skin off, you'd have to take the insides out of the bird. The leg and the wing would be left intact because actually there's very little meat on a um, bird leg or wing, which is why they were fine to send in the post as they were. And actually, you don't really need to do very much to preserve them for the long time. So the 3,000 or so we've got in our stores, they were never properly taxidermied as such. Literally, they snipped the wing and the leg off, mm-hmm. let it dry out a little bit, sent it in the post. And um, I think that the most that happened to it was that they were mounted on herbarium sheets, so they're nice mm-hmm. and flat, and you can store them in uh, little drawers. How many mounted specimens have you from Barrington? Off the top of my head, I know there's quite a lot, but I don't know exactly how many. Certainly in the region of kind of 500 or so, which doesn't sound like much when you're considering the 3,000 or so that we have as wings and legs. Mm. And then we have another, I don't know, maybe 1,500 study skins, which are birds that aren't mounted but the skins have been prepared so they're preserved the insides have been taken out they've been cleaned they've been processed so that they're not going to decay well now have you dispersed barrington's specimens among the others you must have specimens from all over the place of birds in various taxonomic classes and so on do you disperse them or do you keep these intact is there a kind of a threshold to say well this is a, a collection from a famous person and we must keep that as a unit is that what you do We tend to actually keep things according to their type. So for the Barrington collection, for the birds' wings and legs, Mm -hmm. they all go together because we only have one collection of wings and legs and they're from Barrington. We have a few extras which were sent in after he passed away, but they're all considered part of that same collecting process and is all done for the same reason. So they're kept together. In terms of the taxidermy, we don't really clump that together according to the collector. So here we display the Barrington birds on this wall, or we had displayed them on this wall until we had to close the upper floors for the construction work that has been ongoing and is going to be continuing for a while. But the majority of the Barrington birds, but not all of them, Mm -hmm. um, and the others have been integrated into collections because we find it's much more useful for researchers and for us, actually, to find things on a taxonomic basis. The name of the thing, the type of relationship it has to the other birds around it in the case of birds. Those are the most important things for people who want to make use of the collections. Mm-hmm. And although we see the Dead Zoo and the building here on Marion Street mm-hmm. as being the kind of the jewel in the crown of, of the collections because it's got so many amazing things in it, it's only the tip of the iceberg. And the actual research collections and all the work that goes on behind the scenes is actually the bulk of what we're about. And really, the Dead Zoo is, is a wonderful place to come and visit. But actually, most of what we do is behind the scenes and that's really something which we need to work on more because biodiversity is under threat we know it is and if we're going to understand it properly and understand change we need to understand the biodiversity of the past in order to see how it has changed by looking at what we got today if you don't have that reference you can't do that unless you've got a time machine and nobody has a time machine so the collections that we hold are the only way you can really understand the species distribution's of the past and how do you understand change if you can't look at the past and compare it well is there a second death uh, i mean you 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 mount a bird or at a certain time it deteriorates everything deteriorates is there a kind of limit beyond which you say well look we can't keep that old specimen anymore it's too dog-eared and flea-bitten and the rest of it and quietly send it rip.ie equivalent for taxidermists or something like that do you do that do you dump stuff or is this a secret We have no problem with the idea of disposing of a specimen if it is beyond use. But what is beyond use is determined by how you use it. So it might not be fit for display anymore, but it doesn't mean that it's not fit for research. And if there's no data with it, and it's a common species, so let's say a pheasant, and you're not going to be able to find anything interesting about it, and it's not fit for display, then we might consider disposing of it. But even then, we would go through you know, a really, really careful procedure where we would see if the handling collection wants to make use of it or if people want to use it to train up taxidermists to deal with historic taxidermy and work on it. There are lots of different things that you can do to make that specimen, even if it is deteriorated, to make it still useful. And really, that is the whole point of us having this collection. It's here to be used in a variety of different ways. And while we have an obligation and a a desire to look after the collections and make them last as long as possible, there's no point in having them unless they are also functioning as a way of understanding the world around us and inspiring people to find out more about their world. 
Could you point out some of the more interesting or special specimens here in the Barrington Collection? One of, one of my favourites will be the, the dark-eyed junco, which is a, a little tiny passerine bird from North America. It looks yes. a bit like a sparrow mm-hmm. or something. It's that sort of size. Mm-hmm. And that's just over here. It's kind of a bunting-like, finch-like bird. I remember seeing, not this one, I remember seeing the Oregon juncos in America. Lovely little birds. But anyway, you tell us, this was probably the only Irish specimen at the time, was it? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the ones that was taken from the lighthouses. And because it was a real rarity and... and the light station keeper had never seen anything like it before. Mm. It was sent intact through to Barrington, mm. uh, who, who had actually requested that any complete rarities get sent to him intact if possible. Mm. So um, they sent it through, and it was the first record of that species turning up in Ireland. And it is a North American species, mm. so clearly it had been either blown off course during heavy winds, which happens fairly frequently and it's something which still happens today we still have new species turning up in Ireland which have been blown off course through heavy winds and actually as we find um, the climate is changing you're getting more of these big North Atlantic storms bringing these this kind of really really strong winds over more and more birds seem to be coming over caught up in those heavy winds and we refer to them as vagrants but they turn up usually in quite poor condition because they've traveled a very very long way with no opportunity to feed and so they'll often turn up and then pass away fairly quickly afterwards. So we actually get new specimens coming in through that route um, on a fairly regular basis. Oh, fabulous report, Terry. Thank you very much indeed. And the Natural History Museum is open to everyone and is free in, as I understand it, isn't it, Terry? It is indeed, but at the moment there's only the bottom floor open, yeah. so really if you want to go, what you need to do is you need to ring in advance to book your place. But yes, it is open. And... If you're interested, that documentary Terry made about invasive species will be posted on our website so you can listen back to it at your leisure. Terry, thank you very much indeed. Bye. Slaninish. <laughs> yeah, that was very interesting about Richard Barrington. I knew you knew him as a man who wrote about plants and was a plant man and has there was a collection of Richard Barrington's plant collections in the Botanic Gardens. So, I mean... Yes, he, Terry mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. So, so it's not just... He wasn't just a, a bird man and all of these interesting collection in the in the Natural History Museum, but, but the, he was a plant man as well, a polymath, if you like, a in polymath, the world of yeah. science. Yeah. Uh, now, legs and skins... Well, Derek, this great idea of the fact that, that lighthouses attract in migratory birds and lost vagrant birds was a really genius idea that by getting lighthouse keepers to send in legs and skins and remains of these birds, Barrington would be able to identify what was turning up when, what movements were happening. And he produced a wonderful book all about this uh, and it's a, it's a landmark publication in Irish Ornithology. Uh, but it's a very rare book today, or at least it's rare to get a pristine copy with all the pages intact because what happened was many of these were sent to the lighthouse uh, keepers and the lighthouse libraries around Ireland and most of those lighthouse keepers wouldn't have been hugely interested in birds necessarily and on these uh, these long stays in the lighthouses very often unfortunately they would run out of toilet paper and so what would happen is they would they would tear the pages out of books and unfortunately Barrington's book about birds was one of the prime candidates for the first to be taken off the shelf and have pages torn out of it for, for other uses let's say um, so that's what that's why it's one of the main reasons why pristine fully intact copies today are very rare which book is this exactly the book's called the migration of birds as observed at Irish lighthouses and lightships I wonder, has anybody out there got a copy? Get in touch. Mooney at rte.ie. That's pretty much all we have time for today. My thanks to Aina Nilana, to Richard Collins and Niall Hatch. Our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating and our researcher is John Bella Riley. Visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.